trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, I want to welcome you to the show. Our program is brought to you by our friends at firesteel.com as well as the Sterner, uh, start, let's try that, the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You're going to be hearing more about uh, both of them a little bit later on in the program. I have my friend Eric Peters, fellow wrong thinker and the host of epautos.com on the line with me. Eric, how are you today? Well, I'm good, and I too sometimes glitch, so don't don't worry about it. Well, I, I'm so glad that we can catch up. I'm happy for this every week, just because, uh, frankly, you're you're uh, you're kind of like a weekly reality supplement, not just for me, but for many of my listeners. And uh, you're one of the principled voices out there who's helping us maintain sanity in a time where irrationality and insanity has become nearly universal. Uh, you and I were talking before yeah, we went we on the air. Yeah, I think we all need that. Mm-hmm. Yep. You, you we mentioned need an island of sanity. You mentioned when you go to the store now, um, mm-hmm. you know what it's like to be the lone man in the wilderness, right? There are very few people who aren't it's, masked up. Yeah, there's this very interesting, psychologically speaking, incongruity in that uh, a lot of the big chain stores now have no enforcement of the diapering decree. There's no diaper dispenser at the door. There's no security guard. They have the signs, of course, but you can march right on in without your diaper on, and yet I find that I'm almost always the only person in the whole place who isn't wearing the face diaper. And I think it's because the Milgram experiment has been working, and people are now so habituated to it, it's almost like a fashion accessory, and they think that they can't go outside uh, without face diapers in the same way that they feel that they can't go outside without wearing shoes. Yeah, it's and the, the aggressiveness towards those who remain undiapered uh, continues to grow. You'll still, you'll, people feel emboldened to, to speak up and to confront, almost as if it's their duty to uh, to crack the whip and get to get the dissenters back in line. Yeah, because it's almost it is not almost it is a, a religious movement at this point, and it's a dangerous religious movement in in the sense of medieval religion. When if you were a heretic, if you deviated from what was considered orthodox. Uh, you are at physical risk of being killed. We're not quite there yet, but we're not far from that either. So talk to me about uh, your reaction to the the CDC quietly revamping some of the numbers that it has been releasing over the months. Um, I'm not hearing much about this in mainstream media, but it seems like that was a pretty big admission Mm -hmm. that COVID numbers may have been slightly exaggerated. Yeah, it was an enormous admission, and the silence is deafening from the mainstream press. It has been about every piece of good news that has come out about this confected crisis. Uh, the CDC now, mind you, the science, the experts, has published data that indicate that uh, only a small percentage of the people who have died from Wu flu actually died from the Wu flu, that 96% of the people who have died have died from old age, and compound problems such as diabetes, heart disease, uh, and that the actual death total of people who had none of those conditions, who weren't old and who didn't have some other serious medical problem, amounts to something like 9,600 deaths. And that's the CDC. That's not me. 
Now, it's been interesting uh, with that with that coming out. Of course, the president retweeted this. Other people, myself included, have been mm-hmm. like, all right, I'm resisting the urge to say told you so, but I really want to. Mm-hmm. And and predictably, there have also been people coming out going, oh, not so fast. You know, you can't mm-hmm. believe those numbers. And, and the sophistry kicks mm-hmm. in. And, and the question I have here is, Eric, it appears for, for the life of me, like there are people who are trying desperately to cling to the fear. Why would people do that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's not sophistry. I think it's neurosis. I think there is something profoundly wrong now with millions of people in this country who seem to want to marinate in bad news, who want to not only suffer themselves, but want to inflict suffering on others. There seems to be something in the human makeup uh, that inclines a lot of people toward negativity rather than positivity, and that's been remarked upon by anthropologists as an evolutionary trait because it was safer for our our ancestors who lived in the woods to assume that that shadow was a bear rather than something just a shadow, and to assume that something dangerous was there rather than not. So we've kind of got that embedded in our DNA, and when people are terrorized from every direction by official organs, by uh, all of the voices that they've been taught to trust, what you end up with is a kind of a Patty Hearst scenario, and I, I, I mentioned that in one of my articles about this. Uh, the younger people out there probably won't won't get that reference, but Patty Hearst was the heiress of the Hearst fortune, and she was captured in the 70s by a leftist outfit called the Symbionese Liberation Army, which was going to hold her for ransom. And after a while, she became one of them. She became uh, so sympathetic toward her own captors that she actually got involved in a bank robbery where she was toting an AK along with the other guys uh, and committing a robbery and re- making recordings in favor of her own capturers. And I think that's what's happened with the country today as a result of this juggernaut for, what, six months now about the deaths coming, the cases, the cases, and on and on and on without a shred of context, without any of, good, any of the good news being put out there as a counterpoint to any of this. Well, as you point out in uh, one of your columns uh, titled Loving Their Diapers, uh, there's there's yeah. a, a point now where those who, who wear the face mask have come to see it as virtuous. They've taken this psychosis and, yeah. and made it a virtuous thing. Sure, and it's also a fashion accessory now. Uh, it's so sad to see people buying custom diapers with uh, whatever they personally like, whether it's kitties or uh, rainbows or if, they, if they're men and they want to show how, how tough they are, they have skulls and crossbones and teeth and such like that uh, on their face diaper, you know, as if they've just habituated themselves to this just in the same way that so many Americans, sadly, have habituated themselves to being treated as presumptive terrorists whenever they go to an airport. They just, you know, they just stand there and spread their legs and let a government agent stick their hands down their pants and down the pants of their kids, their wives, their girlfriends, their grandmothers, and yep, well, that's just the way it is. That's the new normal. And that is the same thing being played out now with the diapers. Okay, so here's a loaded question for you, but I have to ask, is this the kind of thing that can be reversed at this point? Because it it seems to have become nearly universal. It is going to be a heck of a task. I, oh, it's, a, it's such an awful thing to contemplate. How do you stop a stampede once it's started? How do you, um, how do you, uh, give therapy to probably 150 million people who need therapy, who need psychiatric care at this point because they're out of their minds with fear um, over this, this manufactured crisis. How do, you, how do you accomplish that? The answer is I really don't know, particularly when all of the organs of propaganda uh, are continuing to amp up the fear, continuing to mislead people, paint the worst case, most, most 
insane scenarios, which never come to pass and are never talked about. Anyway, they, they've just demoralized the country to a degree that is almost impossible to articulate. And I really don't know how we walk it back other than asserting sanity to the degree that, to the degree that we can and hope that sanity catches on eventually. Yes, I, I share your hope that one day it will be fashionable to be in your right mind. But uh, but at the at <laughs> yeah, the present exactly. at the present it's it's a that's a very uphill climb. It's a very uphill climb. I, I hope that I, th- I think what it really will come down to. I'm going to define this a little bit farther. I I see no hope that we're going to um, we're going to recover the whole country. But I think that there's a very good possibility of recovering a critical mass of the country, which is probably about 20 percent of the population. If we can get about 20 percent of the population to say enough with this. Stop wearing the diapers, stop terrorizing us, stop terrorizing our children, stop terrorizing, period. If we can get people to do that, 20%, uh, I think, will be enough to turn the tide. Yeah, and, and I think there, it, it, I personally, I think it, the tipping point may even come at, at, at a lower rate. I mean, I've, I've seen at least one study, and I forget which polytechnic institute it was, uh, mm-hmm. they, they said with, if once an idea takes hold among 10% of the population, once yeah. it's strongly held by 10%, that is the tipping point at which it will start to spread generally through the population. Yeah. But even so. Yeah, and that is w- and, and well, that's why I personally don't diaper and never will, and why I encourage everybody who can uh, to do the same. Just because the sight of somebody walking around, uh, not playing sickness kabuki, not pretending that it's it's reasonable and legitimate to wear a face diaper all the time, is going to give encouragement to people who are on the fence and who are maybe doing it just because, oh, God, I just want to be left alone. I just want to go in the store and get my stuff and go home. But they're not really converted cultists yet. But they're, you know, they're a little concerned about being hassled and bothered. But there is strength in numbers. And if they see other people doing it, they're going to be inclined to do it themselves. we got about 30 seconds before we go to break here. But, Eric, when we come back, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about with those new CDC numbers, um, if we can expect to see maybe a little winding down of the push for vaccine, the push for mm-hmm. continued lockdowns. And uh, I'd also like to pick your brain a little bit on uh, some of the, the recent violence and, and things that are going on across the country and, and what that portends for our immediate future. Are you game to talk about all that stuff? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. Eric Peters is my guest. His website is epautos.com. Go there. Check it out. We will take a very quick break, and we will be back to continue our conversation with Eric just the other side of these messages. is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. And Eric, we were talking as we went to the break about how, you know, the CDC has quietly uh, revealed that, yeah, the people who actually died explicitly of COVID-19 was far, far lower than than what we originally were led to believe. But I have to ask you, uh, now that those numbers are out there, now that the CDC's own numbers are a matter of public record, do you see any slowing to this uh, vaccine juggernaut or the threat of further lockdowns? I mean, come on, cold and flu season's just around the corner. What do you see on the horizon? Well, I think it, 
I think it depends on whether the news gets out to people. The problem is that the, the sources of news that many people rely on are not talking about this stuff. They switched gears from talking about uh, the millions and then the hundreds of thousands of deaths when they couldn't talk about that anymore and started hystericizing about the cases, the cases, the cases, which they've been doing now for a solid month or more uh, in order to push this universal diapering thing. And I doubt that they're going to talk much about the CDC numbers either because they're despicable, because they have a very clear agenda, which is to maintain this fear. This isn't journalism. It's propaganda, and it's universal propaganda. They're all doing it, all the mainstream outlets. None of them are publishing any contrarian evidence to this narrative. And I hope that one day these people are held accountable. I hope they're held accountable criminally for what they're doing, uh, because it has been criminal. They have destroyed the lives of tens of millions of people. They threatened to destroy this country to the core of its existence, in my opinion. Talk to me about uh, your thoughts on, on some of the, the craziness that we have seen across the country here in recent weeks, weeks with the uh, rioting in the cities and so forth. It seems like uh, yeah. we, we crossed a little bit of a threshold in this last week in that, uh, okay, now we're actively shooting each other in the streets. What do you see coming from this? Well, we're not actually shooting each other. The left is shooting people who are on the other side of the fence politically. Uh, I don't know of any shootings that were triggered by people who were, for example, in favor of Trump. Uh, they're just doing things like showing they're in favor of Trump and getting shot for it. Uh, and I think the, the, really, the really interesting issue here is the abnegation of responsibility by the government in these cities uh, that have essentially given their tacit and even overt permission to these rioters to just destroy everything and to attack people. I was watching a video earlier today. Uh, something I think it was going on in Portland, of thugs throwing things off of a bridge, not just you know throwing it and running. There were a group of people standing on top of this bridge just chucking stuff at cars that were coming underneath the underpass that had Trump, that had Trump stickers and so on. And no cops, uh, uh, no penalties, no nothing. And that, that sort of thing is going on all around the country. It's going on in one direction exclusively. Um, we are being terrorized again, and I think it dovetails with the corona thing. It's the same group of people that are trying to use this chaos to achieve power for themselves, and that, I think, is the core issue at hand. What are your thoughts on uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, situation from uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin? 17-year-old kid uh, chased down by thugs and uh, did a remarkably good job of defending himself uh, I, I presume you've probably seen the news stories. Uh, any, any thoughts on, on what that portends? Yeah, I don't understand how it is that when you're being chased by people with guns who are clearly intending to kill you, you're not, um, you're not entitled to defend yourself with a gun. That bottles me. I, I've seen the video. There's no question about it. Uh, he was being pursued. He was trying to get away. They were coming at him. He really didn't have much choice other than to lie there and be attacked and probably killed by these people, one of whom, uh, one of the attackers, even said so after the fact that he regretted that he wasn't able to kill the kid. So I don't understand other than as a purely political vendetta why he's been charged with any crime whatsoever. It, to me, the, the most disturbing aspect here is that uh, I, I'm, I'm not saying, boy, we need stronger police. We need troops on the streets. Mm-hmm. I'm not calling for that at all. But it's very curious in many of these cities where the, the unrest has been ongoing. Portland, for instance, you know, and even Washington, D.C. Yeah. Police have uh, have largely just kind of hung back and, um, I don't know, I, I wouldn't say sat on their hands, but they sure haven't been active in trying to stop or prevent property damage. 
certainly not. And isn't that at core the the primary reason justification for having government in the first place? If the government can't maintain physical safety of the populace uh, to protect property and persons from violent thugs, then what do we even need the government for? What's it there for other than to other than to terrorize and oppress us and mulch us and take our money? Yeah, well, who would who would write the uh, tickets for not wearing your seatbelt, right? Well, that exactly. It seems that all of the repercussions now are based on politics. Uh, if you're on the leftist radical side, you can beat people up in the street. You can attack. You can attack old people. Uh, you can smash cars. You can loot. You can burn things. Um, but if you defend yourself against thugs like that, then you're going to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Yeah, and and the way that uh, it's often reported on, it's it's like an inversion of reality. You know, someone who defends themselves is is portrayed as uh, racist, the aggressor. How dare they do something like this? Instead of trying to understand the rage of the people who are destroying their livelihood and maybe even physically attacking them. Right, and who are trying to get away. You know, that to me is the, I think, the, the fulcrum, the key point in the Rittenhouse thing. He was trying to get away. He wasn't running at them. He wasn't charging them. He wasn't confronting them. He was backing off, trying to get away, and being pursued when he fired in, in self-defense. And to me, that's pretty much open and shut. Well, interesting times from that regard. I, I'm i still of the opinion that, uh, you know, if there are people wanting to demonstrate in the streets, I'm probably better off not being there just because they need an audience to play yeah. to, and, and I'm not going to be the one there to give them someone to provoke or to react to them. Well, yeah, and a lot of people are uh, voting with their feet. Um, I was reading something the other day about uh, the mass exodus from New York City, which has seen an upsurge in violent crime approaching 400%. I know that sounds completely wild and crazy, but I looked into it, and it's actually correct. Um, Everything that used to make New York worth being a place you might want to live in is gone. The restaurants are closed. You can't do anything. Uh, and the, the criminals are running amok. And meanwhile, the rents are still spectacularly high. So people are just loading up their U-Hauls and taking off. Now, the worrisome thing is that they may not have learned the lesson. And wherever these people are headed, they're going to bring those New York values and turn the places that they run to into little New Yorks. Scary thought. By the way, I was talking with a realtor friend of mine last night. And in my home state of Utah, uh, the real estate market nuts doesn't begin to describe it. It is absolutely Mm -hmm. crazy. And one of the biggest reasons is because there are people coming from very highly populated metropolitan areas, you know, and metropolises in Southern Mm -hmm. California and so forth. They're moving to Utah and buying up every property they can get their hands on simply because they don't want to stick around those uh, uh, you know, democratically uh, governed paradises. Well, you know, that, though, is a nice little barometer of sanity, at least. They understand that their physical safety is at risk, uh, and I empathize with that, and I, you know, I, I approve of this message. It's the same thing here. I live in a rural area, uh, and you'd think not many people would want to move here because we don't have many services, and you're out in the sticks, and you have to drive 40 minutes to get to pretty much anything. But the market here is booming because people want to get away, and they want to they want to be able to not have to worry about being killed if they walk out in their backyard. The times we live in, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, the times we live in, indeed. I, I'm, I'm glad that there are commentators such as yourself. We've got about a minute left here. Take a minute and tell us yep. about your website. To tell us about your sponsors. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Well, it's epautos.com, which I call the web's best libertarian gearhead site. And this is a new thing I thought I'd mention that people might be interested in. I've partnered with one of my readers, 
who is a brilliant T-shirt designer, the guy who made the uh, We Say, They Say uh, Boo and We Say Moo T-shirt. Remember that one? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, if you look at the bottom of my page now, there's a, a little graphic ad for his store. And this is his store, not mine. I just wanted to help him because I think his T-shirts are magnificent. He's also got a Gesundheit Führer's T-shirt and some other T-shirts <laughs> that I recommend anybody who wants to make a statement against sickness psychosis check out. Okay, so epautos.com, and I will definitely yep. keep an eye out for that. I'm, I'm grateful for any gear that helps get the message out. Eric, thanks again for joining us. I hope we get a chance to catch up again same time next week. We will. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got a lot to cover here in the uh, second half of this hour. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get the sense that we are living in a time of inverted reality. And, and I mean that uh, in, in the sense that the things that we see reported on, uh, if, if you still access mainstream media, I know a lot of us have kind of uh, cut our intake of, of mass media or heritage media. But, uh, man, there is just, it, it's like you're, you're being told the exact opposite of what your eyes are showing you. Probably the best example I can think of this was just uh, within the last week or so. CNN showing, you know, the, the headline says, uh, fiery but mostly peaceful protests, you know, in I think it was in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And, and the, the reporter standing there with burning buildings in the background. Oh, yes, yeah, the fire and the rubble back there. Yeah, it was uh, still a mostly peaceful, pro, you know, uh, protest. So we're, we're just told, are these riots? Pfft, they're a figment of your imagination. Antifa? Ha! Never heard of them. There's no such thing. And yet there's, there's plenty of evidence out there that, uh, that our, our lying eyes are telling us, uh, of, co- of course this is real. And, and, and to, to take that to the next level, okay, to turn it up to 11, as, uh, as uh, what's his name uh, from Spinal Tap? Sorry, Nigel, <laughs> as he would say. It's uh, NPR's bizarre interview with an author who was defending looting as nonviolent and morally good. Looting. I know. Listen up here. This is an article from uh, Brad Palumbo. Found this on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, fee.org, debunking NPR's bizarre in defense of looting interview. Now, Brad points out most listeners tune into NPR to catch up on news on their commute home in the afternoon. But he says increasingly, the state run media outlet's audience is instead being treated to far left political arguments sympathetically aired and left unchallenged. On August 27th, the public radio station aired an interview with the author of the book In Defense of Looting, Vicki Osterweil, on the popular Code Switch podcast, and uh, they apparently published this on NPR.org. Journalist Natalie Escobar opened the ostensibly objective interview by dismissively citing hand-wringing about the ongoing violent unrest, rioting, and looting. The havoc has destroyed thousands of businesses and left at least 15 people dead. And here's a, this is a tweet 
from NPR's Code Switch. In the midst of protests and uprising, there is often a loud call to denounce riots and looting. But in her new book, author Vicki Osterweil, Vicki Osterweil, rather, argues that looting is a strategic resistance tactic that has been used for centuries to fight injustice. Well, when you put it that way, with a good healthy dollop of sophistry, I guess we have no choice but to accept it. Now, Brad Palumbo says in the controversial interview, which quickly went viral, Osterweil attempts to recast property crime as nonviolent and morally good. Osterweil says, when I use the word looting, I mean the mass expropriation of property, mass shoplifting during a moment of upheaval or riot. That's the thing I'm defending. I'm not defending any situation in which property is stolen by force. It's not a home invasion either. It's about a certain kind of action that's taken during protests and riots. Now she continues, looting is taking those things that would otherwise be commodified and controlled and sharing them for free. Looting demonstrates that without police and without state oppression, we can have things for free. She also claims contempt for looting is driven by anti-blackness and contempt for poor people who want to live a better life. Wow. To me, that's just stunning. You want to talk about a defense of the indefensible, there it is. Big as life, twice as ugly. Now, Brad Palumbo says, before going any further, it's worth pointing out the glaring holes in these arguments so far. For one, he says, Osterweil's definition of looting is inconsistent. She defines looting as not any situation in which property is stolen by force. But then she also says it is the mass expropriation of property, mass shoplifting during a moment of upheaval or riot. Now, by definition, the mass expropriation of property during a riot is stealing property by force. When a mob tears through a mall, shatters windows, fills their pockets, and then lights the place on fire, they're using force to take what they want in violation of others' rights. This is obviously done with force. And Brad Palumbo says, after all, what happens if people do not allow the mob to take their property? The answer is they end up like David Dorn, a former police officer shot and killed by rioters while trying to protect a pawn shop from looting. Or they end up like one elderly business owner who was caught on camera trying to protect his store and beaten to a pulp by rioters for his trouble. So if looting wasn't done by force, people would simply tell the mob, sorry, you can't do that. But it's the threat of force and the use of violence that allows the mob to proceed anyway. And by the way, there's, uh, he's got a link to the tweet of this elderly man defending his store in the Kenosha riots. I don't know if I would say I recommend watching the video for yourself, but it will definitely shed some light on what he's talking about. It's very violent. He gets smacked in the face with a, a, a water bottle filled with concrete and it breaks his jaw. I mean, it's, it's, it's sickening, absolutely sickening to see. Brad Palumbo says, moreover, despite Osterweil's protestations, looting in no way demonstrates that we can have things for free. Everything that's taken through looting imposes costs onto others. Now, we should all understand this, right? But he spells it out very clearly. I don't know how anybody in their right mind could argue against this. The stolen property by no means comes free. Shop owners pay for it in their lost livelihoods, untold hours spent repairing their businesses, and in many cases the destruction of their dreams when their stores are never able to reopen. Meanwhile, the community bears costs in the form of higher insurance rates, reduced economic opportunity, and the destruction of the grocery stores, pharmacies, and other institutions they rely on. 
the inescapable reality of scarcity means there is no such thing as free loot. And as far as the opposition to looting being driven by anti-blackness, that's a false smear. In fact, rioters are destroying many minority-owned businesses. And many of the most prominent voices to speak out against the destruction are African Americans themselves, such as the parents of Jacob Blake, the man whose shooting by police prompted the latest rioting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Jacob's mother said, If Jacob knew what was going on as far as that goes, the violence and destruction, he would be very unpleased. Please don't burn up property and cause havoc and tear your own homes down in my son's name. You shouldn't do it. Yet as Brad Palumbo points out, Osterwill's real ideological message, which NPR is uncritically promoting through its massive taxpayer-backed platform, is the Marxist argument that property destruction is nonviolent because property rights are invalid. Now, unfortunately, Osterwill is by no means the only left-wing voice making this argument. In the interview, Osterwill offers, in terms of potential crimes that people can commit against the state, it's basically nonviolent. It's just property. It's not actually hurting any people. To which Brad Palumbo replies, wrong on every count. Attacks on property are themselves aggressive forms of violence, as opposed to, say, self-defense. But why should we consider property destruction violence? Well, he says, for one, the widespread destruction of property inevitably involves endangering human life. Because of the inevitable tendency of force to escalate into more force, it's impossible to loot or riot without endangering people. Consider the fact that, at minimum, 15 people were killed during the initial months of rioting after George Floyd's death, and that more have died in the unrest since. Or just remember how Minneapolis police discover a torched corpse in a burned-down pawn shop days after arsonists and rioters had come through that neighborhood. Osterwill might have believed these looters were just destroying property, but in reality, they allegedly murdered someone. But even when looting entails no direct physical harm to any person, it's still violence. Why? Well, an attack on someone's livelihood is still an attack on their life. A small business owner relies on their property to pay for food on their family's table to pay for their child's health care, to put a roof over their heads. This is why famed economist and political theorist Murray Rothbard insisted property rights are human rights. He said, quote, Much is heard these days of the distinction between human rights and property rights, and many who claim to, ter- to champion the one turn with scorn upon any defender of the other. They fail to see that property rights, far from being in conflict, are in fact the most basic of all human rights. The human right of every man to his own life implies the right to find and transform resources, to produce that which sustains and advances life. That product is a man's property. That's why property rights are foremost among human rights and why any, the, any loss of one endangers the others. End quote. So no matter how much propaganda state-run media publishes or how desperately leftist authors attempt to argue otherwise, Brad Palumbo says the truth is clear. When rioters destroy livelihoods in a fit of political rage, it is violent, destructive, and wrong. And I applaud him for speaking up and making that case. You would think it doesn't even need to be said, but apparently, in the times in which we live, it does. I'm just glad he did it. All right, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the best-kept secret of the middle class. It's the secret to their stability. And I probably shouldn't share it with you, but I feel like it's in the interest of society to do so. We'll be right back.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I do want to mention uh, my friends at uh, firesteel.com. It just makes my heart happy to see uh, my listeners go to firesteel.com to check out their ferro rods, their magnesium fire starters, their, their, their strikers, and to know that uh, they looked at this and went, hey, this is actually pretty cool stuff. I'm going to put one of these in my 72-hour kit, or I'm going to keep this in my vehicle emergency kit. I'm not saying that you are less than a wise human being, you know, to not have one of these incredible fire steel fire starters in your own kit. But if you don't have a fire steel fire starter in your kit, you probably still wash your clothes on a rock down by the river. Okay, I'm, I'm kidding. But seriously, it is worth your time to take a look at their website. Look at the videos. See for yourself how it all works. It's fascinating. You don't have to stockpile thousands of books or boxes of matches. You don't have to have hundreds of cigarette lighters. One gob spark fire starter can get you going on about 15,000 fires. And in a survival situation or disaster situation, that could be the difference between comfort and discomfort or even life or death. Firesteel.com. Remember, through September 3rd, you put in my name, B-R-Y-A-N, at the coupon, as the coupon code at checkout. That'll save you 10% on your purchase. So let's talk about social justice. We hear a lot of talk about this today. And in fact, I think it's, it's building to a fever pitch. There must be social justice. That's why we have people rioting in the streets. That's why, depending on where you are and who you are and the color of your skin, you might just have the crap beaten out of you just for walking down the street. You don't have to even say anything. All you have to do is just be the wrong color. Not appear as woke as the people who are doing the beating and the berating. There's a great article. This is from actually a couple of years ago from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. And he's quoting the the great uh, economist Hayek, F.A. Hayek, on how social justice, as it is defined, demands the unequal treatment of individuals. Isn't that something? Because we're led to believe, well, all this marching in the streets, all this violence, all of the all of the upheaval, it's about equality, equality, equality. No, it's not. Listen to this explanation. John Miltimore says social justice is one of those squishy terms that's not easy to define. One thing we know for certain, social justice is not the same thing as justice. An age-old idea that was the focus of such thinkers as Aristotle, Plato, Augustine of Hippo, Aquinas, and Hume. After all, if social justice meant the same thing as justice, the word social would be superfluous. Now, many years ago, while speaking to William F. Buckley, Jr., on the idea of social justice, the Nobel Prize-winning economist F.A. Hayek observed the meaningless conception of the term. Quote, Everybody talks about social justice. But if you ask people exactly what they mean by social justice, what they accept as justice, nobody knows, Hayek said. I've been trying for the last 20 years asking people, what exactly are your principles? End quote. Now, John Miltimore says, if one Googles the term social justice, here's the definition you're going to find. Social justice, noun, justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. 
And John Miltimore says, from this definition, one quickly sees a fundamental difference between justice and social justice. To Aristotle, Cicero, and America's founding fathers, justice applies to individuals. But to social justice advocates, justice is collective. And implicit, he says, in social justice doctrine is the idea that improper balances in wealth and privilege must be corrected. But how? Once again, he turns to Hayek. Hayek knew very well, and during his interview with Buckley, he explained to a young Jeff Greenfield that social justice demands treating people unequally. This is how Hayek put it. The classic demand, or the classical demand, is that the state ought to treat all people equally in spite of the fact that they are very unequal. You can't deduce from this that, that because, you can't deduce from this, rather, that people are unequal because people are unequal. You ought to treat them unequally in order to make them equal. That's what social justice amounts to. It's a demand that the state should treat people differently in order to place them in the same position. To make people equal, a goal of government policy would force government to treat people very unequally indeed. End quote. And as John Miltimore explains, therein lies the rub. For social justice advocates, the U.S. Constitution forbids the state from denying citizens equal protection of the laws. So passing legislation that treats people differently is, well, tricky. And because of this, he says, in recent years, we've witnessed a softer, gentler version of social justice that involves private companies and elite universities versus the heavy hand of government correcting, quote, imbalances in wealth and privilege. A notable recent case was Harvard, which stands accused of discriminating against prospective students of Asian descent. During the trial, a dean of the school admitted Harvard uses different admission standards based on the race and gender of the prospective students. Asians must receive an SAT score of at least 1350, 250 points higher than the threshold for Native American, Black, and Hispanic high school students in order to receive a recruitment letter. Harvard has engaged in and continues to engage in intentional discrimination against Asian Americans, said Adam Mortara, an attorney for the plaintiffs. Now, of course, school officials say, hey, we're just trying to break the cycle of injustice, but it proves Hayek's point that social justice requires treating people unequally. To treat prospective Asian students differently in ways that adversely affect them is unequal treatment, regardless of whatever lofty moral goals Harvard cites. And this is the fundamental question of our time and the source of most of our political discord. Should we treat people equally or treat them differently based on their race, gender, or class to correct collective imbalances in wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society? John Miltimore says one can choose to be one side or the other, but there's no denying there is a choice. Because all semantic games aside, Hayek's logic is correct. Social justice demands treating people unequally. And he says America, history shows, failed to uphold the ideal of treating people equally, and the results were disastrous. We must not repeat the mistake. All right, shifting gears. One more thing to get to, the best-kept secret of the middle class. I thought this was a great one. Why should only the middle and upper classes enjoy the advantages of marriage as opposed to cohabitation? That's the secret. Marriage. This is an article by Tamara El-Rahi. Found this on intellectualtakeout.org. But that question, why should only the middle and upper classes enjoy the advantages of marriage as opposed to cohabitation? This was a question posed by a recent Center of Social Justice UK report called Family Structure Still Matters with married parents twice as likely to stay together than the ones who are just cohabitating, their kids can benefit from numerous advantages of this stability, like avoiding mental health issues or criminal conviction. And the report sums it up well, saying, 
The consequences of family instability are alarming. While the benefits conferred by marriage are inspiring, it is therefore surprising that government consistently fails to distinguish between marriage and cohabitation. In its language around family structure, including crucially in its data collection, government persists in blurring the two categories of married and cohabitating. Official silence on this issue has sent out the message that marriage and cohabitation are interchangeable. Yet we have seen how the two structures lead to widely different outcomes. Now, what are these outcomes? Well, the CSJ study points out that for cohabitating parents, their children experienced higher rates of cognitive delay, a greater presence of aggression and antisocial behaviors, more likelihood of involvement with crime or domestic abuse, and more underperformance in the educational arena. The disadvantages extend to the parents themselves, too, including higher levels of psychological distress and less healthy lifestyles, while married couples were both healthier and more likely to engage meaningfully with their communities. Now, in Australia in 2017, 81.3% of couples lived together before marriage, as opposed to just a 16% rate in 1975. So there's no doubt that this is the norm now, but as a Sydney Morning Herald article from late last year pointed out, cohabitation doesn't deliver the same levels of happiness, trust, and well-being that marriage can bring. Unfortunately, there exists a try-before-you-buy mentality. And Tamara says, this is something I see often among my generation. And while this seems like a way to avoid marrying the wrong person, most don't realize that it also ingrains a non-committal mentality where one can pick up and leave at any time. The CSJ report calls for the government to be more honest in its distinctions between marriage and cohabitation so that couples can make more informed decisions about their lifestyles. And she says, I, for one, agree. That's a Tamara El-Rahi writing for, uh, actually this was uh, published first by Mercator.net, but I picked it up off of intellectualtakeout.org. I've heard it said, and I think that there, there may be some validity to this, that, uh, you know, uh, marriage is a great benefit to society. And I think the stability is the biggest part of that benefit. However, it's that non-committal attitude, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm heading down a rabbit hole here by bringing this up, but, you know, easy divorce made marriage a little more disposable, something that uh, may or may not have been such a great idea. It's like uh, trying to fly an F-16 fighter, you know, with the cockpit open, just in case I want to get out. Not necessarily the best idea. You want to fly that aircraft to the uh, maximum performance? you got to commit and close the hatch. Or at least that's one analogy I've heard that seemed to make more sense. This is The Brian Hyde Show.